Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Time of day, everyone. This is Americans Watching the Footy. This is episode 63, and this is our recap of the 2022 semifinals. I am Ethan Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California. I am Benjamin Castle coming to you from about a meter away from Ethan in South San Francisco, California. And Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is beneath Ethan's bed. It's back to the standard greeting and back to one game amazing us each round, I guess. I'm not sure. I mean, after the first round of finals, it would have been hard to keep up with the level of drama and insane finishes. And there was no insane finish in this round. But of the two games, one was at least compelling the whole way through and had some unexpected twists. And the other, you know, at some point, even in finals, you're going to have a game that's just kind of blah. And unfortunately, we got one of those. And it means we'll be saying goodbye to a team that I really enjoyed watching throughout the year, but the post-mortems will come before our preliminary finals preview. Before we go through the semifinals, just to follow up with some recent trade news, the most intriguing items, we've been following the situation with Richmond, trying to acquire both Tim Taranto and Jacob Hopper. Well, the Giants are seeking two first-rounders for Hopper, and with a year left on his contract, maybe it might not be as feasible for the Tigers to make both of those acquisitions happen. The Tigers do have their first round picks for this year and next, but how much are they willing to give up? Hopper had previously been linked to Geelong, but more closely linked to the Cats has been his teammate, former Geelong Falcon, Tanner Brune. The Cats are continuing to pursue Brune, as well as Jack Henry's brother, Ollie, who apparently already wants out of Collingwood. It's been tough for him to find a spot later in the year. I would be more than up for Ollie Henry. I don't know about how Broom would fit in just because I haven't watched his game very closely. But the cool thing about both Henry brothers is they're pretty versatile players. They can be slid into different spots. And as we've seen this year, that's a really good thing to have. Well, Jack, much more so than Ollie. I've yet to see real defensive acumen from Ollie. But forward depth is certainly something that would be nice. You know, it would still probably be tough for Ollie to crack the lineup every week. But as you manage guys, as injuries happen, that's a damn good backup plan. And if the sub rule stays in place as is, Henry has shown himself to be a very good fourth quarter performer. We'll be talking more about Fremantle, obviously, but they have had a number of players who have been rumored to be wanting out. We've already talked about Rory Lobb. Liam Henry may be wanting out now that he's slipped down in the pecking order. The rise of Michael Frederick factoring into that, as well as perhaps the extension of Bailey Banfield, which I did not really see coming, I must admit. Yeah, I thought Banfield would be in that category along with Lloyd Meek and a couple others of quality players who just couldn't crack a very deep lineup at Frio. And I thought he would have been looking for a new club that would serve his needs better in terms of playing time. Banfield is from... Western Australia, and also there are going to be some lines in those forward two-thirds opening up, of course, with David Mundy retiring, with Nat Fife not nearly being the player that he once was, and also just constantly being hurt because he's Nat Fife, and also other players moving on, including Griffin Logan, all likelihood. There's a rumor that he's been offered four years by North, and Blake Akers, we know that Carlton have been steadily linked to him, and that is as unofficially official as unofficially official could get that he'll be at Princess Park next year. I don't know how Collingwood are going to have any sort of room to add anybody considering how tough it is to crack their lineup to begin with, but it looks like the Pies are interested in Braden Fiorini from Gold Coast who had 
a couple of really big games down the stretch this year. And also has been performing well in the VFL in recent times there. The Suns having made the preliminary final before losing to their Gold Coast rivals in Southport. Fiorini played the first 10 games, as well as rounds 15 through 18, though for 16, he was the unused sub. It is funny that there are big ads for the Southport Sharks at Metricon Stadium while the Suns are playing. Southport's late CEO was on the Gold Coast board, so that likely is a factor in that regard. But it is an interesting wrinkle in that rivalry. Well, we've only got two finals to break down, as we said, and one of them much more compelling than the other. I got to say, from a Geelong standpoint, it was really interesting watching Melbourne and Brisbane. My thought process was, yes, Brisbane would be the easier matchup, but if they get there, they'll have beaten the Ds, they'll have won at the MCG, and then kind of just look like they have that it factor and might just be the team of destiny. And that's what the Cats are going to have to deal with. Well, it took well more than a half a footy for you to get to that thought because Melbourne led by 15 at quarter time and 22 at halftime, doubling Brisbane up at that point. In fact, they led by 28 with just 16 seconds left in the second quarter after a Kazi Pickett goal. Another big play by Mason Cox's favorite player. I just want to stop for a moment and say how wholesome this is, you know, Cox live-tweeting games and just talking about how much he loves watching Kazi Pickett. I think it's the coolest thing. I hope this bromance is not one-sided. Having said that, I'm not nearly as well aware of Kazi's social media presence. It's just very cool and very genuine. And I think athletes being impressed by other athletes in the same sport as them is really fun. You know, it's one thing if a baseball player has a favorite football player or something. I think this is... There's something so cool about this. Anyway, Pickett's goal puts the Demons up 28, and yet, in those last 16 seconds, the Lions got one back and got into half down 22. Another center clearance by Dane Zorko, his ability to kick from the center circle into the forward 50 on display yet again, and then Stephen May's fist went in the wrong direction, went right to Kalamachi, and he scored just before the siren. And at this point, it still looked like the Ds were in control, but... At least we had a game worth watching. Melbourne dominated possession early, winning contests, all the things that you'd expect from them, getting all sorts of clearances, but just not being able to fully cash in on the scoreboard. And when Melbourne have struggled to hold a lead this season and entering this game, they had blown five leads of 22 or more this season. I knew that the possibility was there for something to really change in the second half. I just thought with their track record against Brisbane, not only this year, but going back a couple years as well. Again, Melbourne had won four straight meetings going in that they'd still managed to hold on. But Chris Fagan made easily the smartest coaching decision of the game at halftime. And that was deciding to put Jared Barry against Clayton Oliver one-on-one. And Barry took Oliver out of the game while getting possessions and runs himself. He did a really good job at keeping Oliver away from anything that mattered at most stoppages, especially on center bounces when everybody has to be a bit more spaced out. You combine that with Christian Petraka, Max gone, clearly playing injured, and you can get why Melbourne slowed down so much. I mean, Petraka was never going to be able to get in a complete game with a hairline fracture in his fibula, and gone, you could tell he just couldn't run in the second half. We learned something really interesting about Petraka during this game and about human anatomy and biology in general. Did you know that you'll be sore if you run on a broken leg? I don't know how the broadcasters were so fascinated by this, especially considering they were footy players too. I mean, maybe they never tried running on a broken leg, but also it's like this is information that you would think people would be more aware of? Boy, oh boy, wowee, Brian Taylor has never broken a bone. I don't know if he has or hasn't. He acted like he had it on the broadcast, that's for sure. I can get why the general sense of amazement he has toward anything going on in front of him gets really annoying for a lot of people. We still find it amusing a lot. I think he's awesome because he's so easily impressed but I was just blown away by the, by the idea that he felt the need to say that Petraka would be sore after running on a broken leg. As if he weren't sore going in. Oh yeah, we didn't even lead by mentioning that 
Joe Danaher didn't play this game because his wife went into labor prematurely and he rushed back to Queensland. So in came former basketballer Tom Fullerton in his place. You know, there was some discussion of stuff like, you know, would, you know, is it right to skip the game for the birth of your child? Obviously it is. I don't think there was really that much debate around it after the first couple minutes. I think common sense won out pretty quickly there. I think the debate that you could have is ask, if you know your schedule as an athlete, maybe you shouldn't, you know, this is a nine-month process, so maybe you shouldn't start the process nine months before important games. Maybe you should try to have kids during the off-season. That's a very Lee Matthews approach to it. I know he told his players, don't do stuff like that in January. And Danaher's wife went into labor about a month before her due date. Okay, well, considering the baby was premature, then it's like, what you going to do? Before I was born, my due date was right around Ethan's birthday, so my parents moved up Ethan's fourth birthday party, and I ended up being there for it anyway. Stealing the show and making things way less fun. You kind of established that trend early. So with Danaher out, and given the game that he had the round before, where was that scoring touch going to come from? Well, Eric Hipwood had another four goals after having three in the elimination final. His last three goals came in the third quarter in which Brisbane managed to even up the game. It was 8-11-59 apiece at three-quarter time. They evened out the clearances early in the third quarter. They were finally taking advantage of space they were given on the mark, and they overall were cleaner. Melbourne hadn't been particularly clean with the ball in hand throughout the first half, but after halftime, Brisbane actually made it count, and it was a big reason as to why they went on a five-goal run, beginning with that Achi goal right before the halftime siren. And speaking of goals at the siren, Hipwood's third goal of the quarter, his fourth of the game, came right at the three-quarter time siren. And also like Achis, it came shortly after a center clearance because Darcy Fort had scored just before that. Fort, of all people, got Stephen May holding the ball. And Fort, we knew, was going to have to be an important player in this one because Oscar McInerney was in concussion protocol. So no McInerney, no Danaher, and look at the performance they put up in the third quarter already. I was damn impressed with that alone. Even if they trailed off in the fourth quarter, I would have left with a positive impression of how they changed their approach at halftime. Chris Fagan's really good adjustments finally appeared in a final because we've seen it so many times during the home and away season. And while there are some things that you would understand why they would show up in home and away games, but not finals, smart coaching is something that can show up year round. And in this case, it finally did. Oh, by the way, I use the word final and finally a lot there. I would imagine Australians are used to it at this point. You know, it's not like you say playoffs like we do. Uh, Playoffs? Don't talk about it. Playoffs? You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. Another game. I know Australia has a decent NFL following. I'm not sure how much they know about the Jim Mora playoffs quote. Considering how good Australian cultural references are in general... I would guess there's a level of familiarity. I was waiting for Ken Hinckley to show some personality and have a Jim Mora-like moment early in the season, and it just never came. And meanwhile, as Fagan had made these smart decisions and they'd begun to help Brisbane turn the game around, Melbourne still hadn't figured out who the right matchup for Lockie Neal was. I guess it wasn't James Harms because they kept switching things around. And Simon Goodwood put Tom Sparrow on Neal to start the fourth quarter. Neil had a very active game again. Nothing ever really stuck when they were playing against him. So we got into the fourth quarter, tied at 59, and barely two minutes into that final quarter, the Lions took their first lead of the game. Harrison Petty held Daniel McStay's jumper. It was one of those that in real time, just looking at the live broadcast angle, you thought it was a soft call, but then you see the replay, you see the reverse angle. It's like, oh yeah, that's holding jumper. Good call. Lions tacked on a couple of behinds from there. A couple of misses by Jared Berry. And when Angus Brayshaw responded, running with a ton of room along the left wing and then scoring following a Stephen May free kick, you thought, all right, here we go. That was fun and all, but here come the D's to put this thing away. There was a real chance at that point that Berry could have kind of become a scapegoat type figure between that And also the fact that he appeared to be attempting to gouge out Clayton Oliver's eye behind the play. He's been offered a one-game suspension for that. And at the time of recording, we haven't had his appeal yet. A lot of players current and former are coming to Barry's defense on this one, which kind of surprised me. Especially when there's precedent for the suspension when Barry himself 
was the victim of an eye gouging attempt by Andrew Brayshaw last year. You know, I've gone back and watched that play, and I don't think there's any way you can justify it. I don't think you can either. The question ends up being, though, is that sort of thing worth a suspension? I think it's the sort of conduct you want to get out of the game, so I get it. And I'm not saying this because Geelong will benefit from his absence. I'm seriously just looking at the play, no consideration to who their next opponent is, any of that. Just, it was a dirty play. It wasn't like he was, you know, just trying to find somewhere he could grab on so that he could push off of him and get up and separate himself. He was not trying to do that. He knew what he was doing there. At the very least, he was going after his face, probably going after his eyes. So I don't know if the standard is a suspension for that or just a fine, but my belief has been that's the sort of thing that you should really be trying to get out of the game because it's totally unnecessary and doesn't contribute to anything. Whereas, you know, a lot of times if a guy gets suspended multiple weeks for a dirty bump or something, it's like it was a football play. It was a dangerous football play, but he was attempting to gain possession or something. Whereas this this sort of stuff is just really unnecessary. Both teams had some inaccuracy issues from there. Lincoln McCarthy missed off of another ball that Stephen May couldn't cleanly mark, which was a pretty sour end to what had been a really nice sequence for the Demons up until that point. They had put on some really nice pressure. Took a while for there to be another goal. FS2 froze. Oh my god, they started showing the montage. If we didn't have Watch AFL, someone would have been getting cut. So yeah, the montage was shown... During the game, it wasn't shown after the game, but it was shown during. Believe it or not, they actually ended up sticking with the post-game coverage through interviews. By the way, I do want to mention, the montage was shown before the game, and not only that, we got like a minute into a second montage, which I think was the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles, might have been from their... 2011 premiership season, because, you know, the main one is from the 2013 Sydney Roosters. I really want to reach out to Fox Sports and find out where they come up with this stuff to use as filler. I'd love to know who produces these things, if they use them for filler at other times, or if it's just with footy and maybe NRL. And also, why we don't have any footy montage like that. I don't know, but... The whole thing fascinates me, and I'm sure there's an answer out there somewhere, and I just hope that we can access that and find that answer. Okay, the feed came back after about four minutes. There was a goal that Fox Sports 2 viewers missed. A clean handball from Lockie Neal got the Sharon out of trouble, and Hugh McCluggage got a kick to Zach Bailey, so that stretched the lead to nine with... About ten and a half to go. Once again, Zach Bailey showing up in important moments. Almost like he's really good or something. Almost like he would have been 22 under 22 had he not been born the exact day he was because he turns 23 a day before the grand final. That has to be the only reason he misses out. Wow, we, I guess Bruce is going to spend a lot of time talking about when various people involved with the Brisbane Lions were born or conceived or... I think we've kind of run our course on that, except for saying Danaher made it by half an hour and no news is good news. So his wife and the baby girl seem to be doing fine. You know, I would have never guessed that he didn't have any kids before, just considering his goal song this year is Let It Go, which made me think he probably, you know, it's the sort of thing that like, oh, his kids like Frozen. That's why. Usually that's the reason for something like that or Baby Shark or any sort of childish song thing. And I don't know, maybe he had like a cousin or nephew or niece or something. I don't know. It doesn't seem like the sort of thing that he would have chosen on his own. I wonder if it was a bet gone wrong with his new teammates a couple years ago. Melbourne had a chance to get one back when Jake Melksham couldn't field a kick that got through Harris Andrews' legs. Wasn't really impressed with Andrews in this one, but but Melksham was probably one of the worst players of field, so... Yeah, opinion on him has soured once again after being so important in that Carlton game. Was Stephen May right all along? The thing with Melksham, when he's on, he's really good. And when he's bad, he's really bad. A little like Ryan Tika Masala Gardner. I saw that coming the whole way. Brisbane ended up getting the next goal when Eric Hipwood beat May in an aerial contest again. May getting beaten a number of times in the air and also... 
just making weird decisions on when to attempt to mark or just fist the ball away. Hipwood had a bit of a run. He bounced and then found Charlie Cameron just in front of the line. Brisbane led by 14 with five minutes to go. Then a center clearance through Darcy Fort and Jared Berry. Lincoln McCarthy kicked forward and guess who scored again? Could that be Zach Bailey? Yeah, he scored. We knew that. We just weren't sure whether it was a goal or a behind at first. It was ruled insufficient evidence. And I'm going to move on before the Richmond fans start screaming even more. Cost them millions of dollars. It cost people their jobs. They took our jobs. They took your jobs. They took your jobs. So with just under five minutes to go, it was 4.52 when the clock stopped. Brisbane led by 20. And that just felt like the dagger. The review goes your way. You got all the momentum. Melbourne actually got the next two back and seemed to have found themselves pretty quickly. Harrison Petty actually played an important role in that because... He was sent forward, and it made me wonder why that hadn't happened sooner. He had a stoppage clearance with a handball. Then Kazi Pickett decided to kick a dribbler, which worked for him a couple times. And maybe he just shouldn't do it three times? I'm not sure, because the dribbler hit the post, and Jason Dunstall was probably fuming. It was at that point when I felt, okay, this is really happening. When you don't convert on a shot like that, with that little time left in the game. And it was still 19 at that point, so still four scores away. Petty ended up getting the next goal, not all that long after, because he marked from Stephen May. And then Bailey Frisch, who had been a good kick once again, as he's done all year, kicked a goal in all 24 of Melbourne's games now. This work, though, wasn't in finishing the job, but in really starting because he freed the ball by laying a pretty good bump on Darcy Gardner. Alex Neal Bolin ended up with the ball. Luke Jackson did a good job in the air getting even in a marking contest with Andrews that he entered kind of late, and Harrison Petty involved again, the assist to Ed Langdon. So all of a sudden, it's just a seven-point game with 208 to go, 86-79 in Brisbane's favor. Did you still think at that point that the Lions had it won? No. I thought at that point they should still be able to close this out, but there's a chance something historic happens here and the Lions absolutely blow it again. But instead of historic, it kind of ended up hysteric. I mean... At least Lions fans were probably in hysterics after seeing the kind of stuff that Jake Lever pulled at the end of it all. And hysteric is probably a good adjective to describe the kind of uncontrolled reaction he had. Yeah, the game was basically already decided at this point, considering the Lions were close to the Melbourne goal, up two scores, a little over a minute left. So it was really done at this point. Before this, Melbourne had actually gotten that center clearance. But Jared Berry put on a smother of a Jack Viney kick that would have put the ball inside 50. And from there, Brisbane largely controlled it. Once there was a minute left, you knew that it was over. Eric Hipwood and Dane Zorgo helped get the ball into the 50. Jake Lever fielded the ball and was pretty quickly caught by Daniel McStay. And holding the ball was called. I'm still not sure if it was the correct call, but I can see how prior opportunity could be argued. I'm not mad at the call. I'm not sure if I'm mad about it at all, especially when the way that the next few seconds came to be just ended up being funnier for me more than anything. Yeah, the super demonstrative reaction just kind of summed up Melbourne's frustrations where they finally boiled over, and this time it didn't happen inside of an upscale French restaurant. The thing is, it wasn't the big reaction that caused the 50-meter penalty. It was Lever refusing to give the ball back to the umpire when you heard him say three times, give it back to me or it's 50. We could hear it on TV, even with the crowd yelling, so there's no way Lever couldn't hear it. And it's a damn shame that Lever's the centerpiece of all this because we've been super complimentary of him throughout the whole season about how strong he is aerially and how he and Steven May build off each other. Lever had been one of the best players of field before this moment. He'd stepped up when May hadn't. I made a pretty crappy pun at the time that a Lever or Lever usually opens doors instead of closes them. People seized on it. They liked it. I guess dry humor just works in really emotional situations on social media. McStay slotted the goal from right in front, so it ended up Melbourne 11-13-79, defeated by Brisbane 14-8-92 for the first time in over eight years since round 21-2014 against Collingwood. The Lions were victorious at the G. 
and they turned it around in areas where Melbourne had been strong in previous meetings and throughout a lot of the season. They ended up plus three in contested possessions in the second half, when they were minus 23 in the first. Their pressure went above Sydney Swans levels at times, when in their first two meetings, it was Melbourne that had all the pressure. They were less predictable in where they were moving the ball. And in the second half, the scoring went Brisbane's way 70 to 35. Melbourne were doubling them up at halftime. Brisbane doubled them up the rest of the way. My hope is that the Lions just run out of gas from this game, kind of like Collingwood had their epic win over West Coast in the 2020 finals, and the next week just had nothing left in the tank. But this looks like a different Lions team now. Oh yeah, they're going to be getting Joe Danaher and Oscar McInerney back too. That they put on this performance without them is all the more amazing, as I hinted at earlier. It's going to be extremely tough at this point for them to exclude anyone. Of course, Tom Fullerton's going to get the short end of the selection stick, but he did well as a ruck support and had some definite impact off stoppages in the second quarter in particular. And also, Charlie Cameron finally shook free from Michael Hibbert a couple times when Hibbert had been locked down to the point of throwing away the key in their first two meetings. Charlie ended up kicking 3-1. But the game revolved around Jared Berry in the second half for what he managed to do against Clayton Oliver. Berry ended up kicking it behind and having 26 disposals and 8 marks. 22 of Berry's 26 disposals were in the second half. 22 disposals to 9 for Oliver after halftime, and nine of Barry's were contested. Eight of Oliver's were eight of nine. Barry did not leave his side when Melbourne had the ball. Barry had five clearances to Oliver's three in the second half as well. So have the Lions found their tagger for the long term? This could be a real solution for them. Could have been just a guy playing out of his mind on a big stage, just really brought it at the right time. But That's the sort of performance you need if you're going to excel in a finals run. You're going to need some guys who are usually just kind of there, kind of on the marginal side, really stepping up and playing at an elite level. And they certainly got that in this game. I had seen some flashes of Barry being a strong tagger at times this season. I noticed it back in round two against Essendon that Barry ended up going to Zach Barrett and eliminate his impact there in a game where Brisbane had to come back. But is this a flashpoint moment in Barry's career? We'll have to wait at least for a little bit to figure it out, if not longer, depending on the potential suspension and how far Brisbane take things this season. When you look at how Melbourne lost this game, what really stuck out to me was ball handling throughout the game. Early on, they could have easily opened up a big lead, and they led, as you mentioned, by 15 after a quarter, 24-9. But they kicked three six and missed some easy shots. And then late in the game, it was that their sort of entries into the forward 50 were where things were getting interrupted. And they never were able to generate those chances, even when they were forcing turnovers, even when they were demonstrating great midfield pressure. For the large part, they outplayed the Lions, but the areas in which they were bad piled up. And a lot of times it was that they were bad in either 50. They were usually the superior team in the midfield, even with... Lockie Neal out there, even with Jared Barry doing what he did. Seeing the efficiency inside 50 being what it was for this game doesn't match up with the results at all. But again, Melbourne got off shots in the first quarter. They just didn't convert on them. Melbourne ended up being 52.7% in terms of efficiency and getting off a shot inside 50. The Brisbane's 39.6. It just means Brisbane made more of the chances they got. But that's a substantial gap in any game. And it's weird that the team on the poor side of that when under 40 tends to be pretty bad, ended up winning. It is worth noting that there were some times where the Ds didn't even get to record an inside 50 where they should have, where they had numbers, and again, poor ball handling cost them. So if you actually watch the game, you can see where the numbers don't tell the full story. But speaking of numbers, because we like running through those stats, I already mentioned Barry for Brisbane. Daniel Rich was the leading disposal getter in this game, racking up 30 and gaining 721 meters because that's what he does. Locking Neal with 27 disposals, 10 clearances, and 7 tackles. Melbourne just never had a great matchup for him with Neal playing in the center of the ground so much, being involved in quarter passages, and that not being James Harms' MO. 
Hugh McCluggage kicked 1-1 from 25 disposals and had 8 score involvements. Dane Zorko with 22 disposals and 461 meters gained. His kicking through midfield is spectacular. And since you mentioned it, Ethan, I've definitely been focusing on that more. An active game for Kadeem Coleman as well coming from the back. I love the look they have between Rich and Coleman and oftentimes Bailey starting runs in the halfback. Coleman with 19 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 9 marks. As I mentioned earlier, Charlie Cameron kicked 3-1, but Eric Hipwood led the way in terms of scoreboard impacts, scoring 4-1 from 17 disposals and having 10 score involvements. Kind of made you forget that Danaher was out. And it's no surprise that Hipwood's peaks coincide with those of his team. He did feel like a missing piece at times when Brisbane were off their rhythm a bit earlier in the season. On the Melbourne side of things, Ed Langdon, two goals in the behind, 24 disposals, 467 meters. He's really cemented himself as a top-tier wing, even in a loss like this. He's been so consistent just about every week. Really like what I've seen out of him. Clayton Oliver was limited by Jared Barry in the second half to just nine disposals, and he finished with only 21 for the game, but still recorded 12 tackles and nine clearances. James Harms, 20 disposals and eight score involvements. So even though tagging didn't work for him, he had his impact on the game elsewhere in a positive manner. Jack Viney, a behind, 20 disposals, nine tackles and seven clearances. Harrison Petty, a goal, 18 disposals and 11 intercepts. Why the fuck were you booing him? Stephen May, 17 disposals and nine intercepts, but multiple occasions where he tried to punch the ball away that did not work. Some of that could just be a luck thing rather than a technique thing. I don't know how much you could fault the player when they try to fist a ball and it ends up going in the wrong direction. It seems like it happens to even the best of them, and it happened to May multiple times in this game at critical junctures. If the D's had won, we would have been talking a lot more about Alex Neal Bolin, who started the game really well. Finished with two goals and a behind on 13 disposals. He racked up eight score involvements. We would have been talking about Neal Bolin. We would have been highlighting Harrison Petty more. And we would have been talking about Jack Viney more. Viney is a piece that sometimes gets forgotten in a midfield as deep as Melbourne's, but whenever other players in there have been tagged, whatever Petraka or Oliver, more often the latter, has gotten extra attention this season, Viney has been the one who's been really impactful in terms of center clearances and has gotten better corridor runs than either of them multiple times when, if you think back to when Melbourne were at their best last year, That was an area where both Petraka and Oliver had a lot of success. You can see that in that third quarter turnaround from the grand final alone. We'll get into much more of a post-mortem on the Demons before we preview the preliminary finals, but I do want to note real quick, and I'll be more extensive with this in that preview, it's hard to repeat. It's a physically taxing sport, and you can see some of the bumps and bruises piling up and wearing them down. And can you really fault them for that when they've played more games than anyone the last couple of years? Thank you to Spotify, because they're the parent company at Anchor. And thank you to all the other podcast hosting services on which you can find us. Don't forget, you can follow our thoughts on all things AFL and footy in general in real time at Americans Footy on Twitter. I am personally on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. And I actually just kind of had something blow up just because whenever there's an earthquake in the Bay Area, everybody takes to Twitter to confirm that it was an earthquake. It's actually really neat. Like if it's a smaller earthquake, one of the easiest ways to track it, because, you know, one of the important methods to tracking an earthquake is tracking who felt it. People just like reflexively go to Twitter and it's one of the neater uses of this platform. It's definitely like social media for good. I actually don't know if you felt it, Ethan, because you were on a lower floor than I was. No, I didn't. Usually I feel them. I didn't feel this one. It was a magnitude 2.9 and it was across the bay from us. So I know that Cal students felt it and... I can remember how scared a bunch of people were around me just around the start of every year in Berkeley when they felt their first earthquake. Because if you're not from an area that gets it, I can understand how it's a terrifying experience. But we want these smaller earthquakes because we want that pressure on the fall to be gradually relieved rather than having it happen all at once. I didn't really have 
quite the same experience at college with new people, but new people being freaked out by fog in San Francisco was fun. And people being freaked out by the test of the emergency sirens on Tuesdays at noon, which I read recently is still a couple years from coming back because the city's like redoing the whole system. This is a tsunami warning system. It is the funniest thing. Oh, yeah. And I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. And Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is at cat named Brian on Instagram. You talking about the tsunami warning sirens also made me remember that there is a warning siren test in Berkeley. They test the old air raid siren system the first Wednesday of every month at noon. And people get freaked out for that, too, for sure. It's amplified throughout the city. You hear this, like, phone dial-like sound, and then these sirens. The difference is the um, San Francisco one, at least, was once a week. I look forward to it coming back. Just to see how people from outside the area react to it. In part that, and in part just because it's like one of those cool, unique, local things. I wondered what kind of warning systems they have in place in Australia, what kind of wartime relics they may have from that. Initiate us. Inform us. Usually we're the ones doing the informing, and we will do the informing again as we talk about the, well, the second game played. I know technically it's the First semifinal because of the side of the bracket it's on. Anyway, final score doesn't tell the full story, so I'm going to get that part out of the way fast. Collingwood 11-13-79, defeating Fremantle 9-5-59. Quite frankly, I'm shocked that the scoreline ended up the way it was, not only because it meant that the two home teams in these semifinals had the exact same scoreline, 11-13-79, but also that this game did not have the largest margin of victory out of the six finals thus far. That belongs to Sydney over Melbourne from the second qualifying final at 22. The lead sat around 38 for a lot of the second half, though. This game was rarely close, and it's unfortunate because I really liked this Fremantle team throughout the year. It was fun getting to know some of their individual pieces better, getting familiar with them, just watching them play this unique defensive style. And unfortunately, they had... Out of their 24 games, really four shitty ones, and two of those were against Collingwood, who might just be a bad matchup for them, because my hypothesis, at least, is that Fremantle is really good at capitalizing on opponent breakdowns and miscues under pressure, and Collingwood's very good at not beating themselves, and they usually handle pressure really well. You mentioned in our section of our Finals Week 1 preview, the rapid-fire thing we did on why each team can and can't win the flag, the centerpiece of your whole shtick about Collingwood was that they're not great in any one area, but they're not bad in any one area. Their biggest strengths are more intangible things, like handling high-pressure situations, not, you know, ball pressure, but high-intensity moments, and the ability to not beat themselves. The other strength of this Collingwood team is I'm going to make a season 16 Simpsons reference. So I don't know how well audiences will know that one. Seems like outside of the first, you know, eight to 10 seasons, it doesn't quite have the same cultural impact. But Lisa sings a song about Springfield. And at the end, the song ends, you know, I'm talking Springfield where nobody sucks. Flanders. Which, you know, Homer adding the except for Flanders at the end. Well, this is like the original version of the song where nobody sucks. One of the things that Collingwood has built is a team where nobody sucks. And that's half the battle. Just having acceptable players, not great players, takes you a very long way. Trent Bianco had to come in because Taylor Adams had an even more severe groin injury than he had earlier in the season. He tore it off the bone in the qualifying final, and you didn't leave this game thinking negatively of Bianco. He fits into the system pretty damn well. Did he do anything exceptional? No. Did he need to? Also no. He needed to not suck, and he didn't suck. I thought Jamie Elliott was one of the best players out there in this game, by the way. Really liked what I saw out of him, not just the kicking, but he kind of had that presence that you sort of get out of a guy like a, say, Max King when he's on his game or Buddy when he's on, even if it's a totally different skill set and totally different strengths to his game, different body type than, you know, a big full forward like that. 
But that same idea of wherever he goes, there are going to be eyes on him and he's going to command attention from the defense. It's a type of attention that usually does go to taller players. But when Mason Cox is going all over the field and Collingwood otherwise doesn't have that big, tall marking target that people have been used to watching and seeing double or triple team to the air for years, the attention is going to go to the smaller guy that's been super clutch. Ash Johnson has the potential to be that forward figure that everybody needs to watch for Collingwood going forward, even though he's on the shorter end in terms of those types of players. Going back to Mason Cox, though, I like the impact that he had on this game. Didn't end up with any huge statistical totals, just five marks, but he disrupted a lot of contests and sort of had a defensive role in that sense. Oh, and he did end up impacting the scoreboard because it's the finals. That took a while, though. What I took away from the early part of this game is, holy cow, the pace was ridiculous. Frenetic didn't begin to describe it, and Collingwood ended up being the more composed team and the one that was able to keep up this extremely hot pace and very high pressure. At quarter time, Collingwood had kicked four straight to Fremantle one behind, and the only solace that the Dockers could take out of things was, hey, they had only scored one behind at that point last week, but this felt different. Collingwood were getting the defensive work done as well. Jeremy Howe had five first quarter intercepts, while the inside 50 numbers were comparable. On the other end, Brennan Cox helped keep Fremantle afloat in the first quarter with the one-on-one defensive work that he did. He did have a couple of plays later on where he kind of got out-muscled, but if it wasn't for his performance in the first quarter, it would have been a lot worse than 24-1. to Fremantle did get the first goal of the second quarter, It was off of a center clearance. It was one of the only areas, if not the only area, where the Dockers found consistent success in this game was from the center bounce. David Mundy got the quarter opening clearance. No shock that Caleb Sarong was involved. Lucky Schultz ended up getting the goal. But the positives were few and far between for Fremantle, especially when there was an injury concern from Blake Akers that had been lingering since quarter time when Brandon Walker had repeatedly been getting exposed with the ball in hand, and when Fremantle's passes just weren't sticking. The kicks themselves were decent, but the marks were being dropped. Meanwhile, Collingwood were getting theirs. Already talked about the intercept work that Jeremy Howe did. Defensively, Darcy Moore had another very strong game. I realized how much Nathan Murphy matters to Collingwood through the impact of Darcy Moore being able to play a little bit further down the ground be more the halfback that he ought to be instead of a fullback. You know, with most of Collingwood's defense, other than Maynard and Moore, there's nobody who usually takes over a game. Noble had big games against Carlton. Early in the season, I loved some of Isaac Quainer's intercept work, but most of the time, it's just a bunch of guys being solid, not sucking. And again, all of them have the ability to take a game over. Most just haven't demonstrated it. And some of that might be the system just kind of, you know, demanding them to be not a liability rather than try to do big things. Some of it could just be going up against really good competition where it's more important that you just don't fuck up than it is you do anything really special. But any one of those guys on the Collingwood defense could take over a game if needed. And the past two games, it's been Darcy Moore when it's mattered. And he's the one you would expect if you were to look through and ask which defender is going to be the most important one out here. Collingwood led 42-14 to at the half. They never had as good a quarter offensively again after the first, but the damage had already been done in terms of play style, in terms of wearing Fremantle out, kind of stringing them out. And by the time the Dockers got together and outscored their first three quarters in the fourth, the game had already been more than over. And more than anything, I was just happy that David Mundy got a finale goal in the middle of the fourth quarter. And shocker, it came off a of center clearance. I also think it's good that Mundy was able to go out in those final minutes with the knowledge, this is it, soak it all in. Whereas Shane Edwards, you know, just kind of had the carpet pulled out from under him. Mundy, by the way, definitely has the talent to continue playing. It's not like he's being forced out, but it's probably just he's exhausted It's a full-time commitment physically, mentally, and everything. But if he wanted to come back and keep playing, he totally has the talent to. If there was any one goal that slammed the door shut on the game, it was the first goal of the fourth quarter. 
Fremantle had gotten a goal shortly before three-quarter time through Michael Walters after Sam Switkowski had taken away a Nathan Murphy handball. Switkowski appears to be a must for Fremantle to look anything near productive in the forward half, by the way. You remember how inept they looked in the games that he missed. Even when you had a bunch of tall targets, just Switkowski is the piece that everything kind of feeds off. A good mark, but it's more on the ground where he can be that link between Brayshaw, Sarong, etc. Frederick, if Switkowski is electing to go more toward the wing, and the deeper forward group. And that's especially important on a team that's so handball-based and focused on, you know, creating runs, forcing turnovers. But that first goal of the fourth quarter, Fremantle were trying to get out of the center again, as they had done a lot of the time. Mundy's kick was actually smothered by Darcy Cameron, who I didn't notice all that much in this one outside of the main ruck contest. But I guess that isn't as important when Mason Cox is doing his job all over the ground. And speaking of Mason, he got on the end of this one because after Collingwood went wide to Brody Majacek, Majacek found Cox in the 50. Mason Cox pushed away Brennan Cox for this one, and importantly, he did it in the side, so it wasn't a foul. Another instance of Cox just knowing the fundamentals and having clearly been taught the right way, which you'd expect from someone who is able to make the AFL and stay for as long as he has after coming to the game so late. It's funny, early in the year, he looked lost, he looked out of place. Well, remember that one game where he was featured Early on was the game where Craig McRae just threw everybody tall into the forward line for Collingwood. Cameron, Cox, and a healthy Brody Grundy were in there. And Mason does best when he isn't competing with other talls on his own team in any area of the ground. It makes him a bit of a weirder matchup in that sense. Either way, he's been in the right place lately, and that's been another huge lift for Collingwood. The goal Mason kicked was his 100th in the AFL, and also... We thank Sir Swamp Thing for this stat. It made him the first player in VFL-AFL history to kick his first and hundredth goals in front of 80,000 people or more. He kicked his first goal with his first kick on Anzac Day 2016. Michael Frederick got a couple of late goals, including a really nice one. The game had been over for a while. I had felt that it had been over by halftime. Even though it's one of those, you know, you can't turn away because it's finals. What if? But I never felt like there was ever a real push coming from the Dockers. You know, the last couple minutes of this game, though, did feature a couple of really nice highlights. A big Jeremy Howe mark, and a few minutes before that, a really cool Michael Frederick goal from the boundary that accounted for Frio's final goal of the night. It wasn't just from the boundary, it was from beyond 50. It was from 52 in that sort of corner there where the 50 arc meets the boundary on the right side. The angle on that was ridiculous. It was 59 degrees, and if I had to pick a single play of the round, a goal of the round at the very least, that would be it. You know, Frederick had some inconsistency throughout the year, but I think the Dockers are starting to figure out how to deploy him, and heading into next year, he's got a chance to make for a really big season. Collingwood are now the first team to make the prelim after finishing 17th the year prior. To make this more relevant to overall history in the league, they're the first team to make the prelim after finishing in the bottom two the year prior since the West Coast Eagles were wooden spooners in 2010 and placed fourth in 2011 and made a prelim like Collingwood just did. But none of the teams that have done anything like that ended up winning the flag. So add that to more reasons why I'd be betting on the Swans next week. In terms of what worked for them in general, they kept pushing the pace and it kept working. And the pressure they created in the first half meant they had one-way traffic through the quarter. And that's where Jack Crisp and Jordan Degoe did their thing once again. Crisp finished with two goals, 24 disposals, 600 meters gained. Degoe, who looked awesome for the second week in a row. A goal, 24 disposals, 12 score involvements, 626 meters. I hope he's able to keep himself in line off the field because, man, he's been really good on it lately. I hope this can kind of serve as motivation for him as like a, here's what I can do when I'm doing the right things off the field. Nick Dacos had a team-high 25 disposals. Jeremy Howe, big night with 17 disposals, not a staggering number, but 13 intercepts, 8 marks. Fremantle stats of note, Caleb Sarong, the disposal leader for the game with 34. Andrew Brayshaw had 32 disposals and 8 tackles. 
Now I guess the conversation for him goes back toward the Brownlow. Might he get it? Is it Oliver? Is it Miller? Is it Neil? Who the hell knows? I'm really looking forward to Brownlow night this year because I really don't know what's going to end up happening. As I've said, I think it is going to be Tuke Miller, but it's a close race and I'm really looking forward to Brownlow night, which has been moved up by one day so as not to conflict with the Queen's funeral. Blake Akers, who I mentioned at the top of the program, is almost surely going to be off at Carlton next year. 27 disposals, 9 marks, and 569 meters gained. Well, now he has even more of a reason to hate Collingwood. Luke Ryan at 23 disposals, 588 meters gained. Hated Young, 21, 11 marks, and 8 intercepts. These big defensive numbers basically mean, though, that they were tested a lot. Will Brody with 17 disposals and 11 tackles. He transitioned during the year from being a big clearance guy, especially center clearances, to being more of a tackler and allowing Sarong and Brayshaw to do more of their work together. So I guess that's a clear sign of Brody learning how to fit into this pretty talented Fremantle midfield. The biggest need for Frio going forward is consistency in their forward lines and maybe having young blood through guys like Jai Amos can help on that front, especially when Rory Lobb is likely to go, Griffin Logue as well. Hopefully what they have in the pipeline can deliver for him going forward. I expect Justin Longmere to figure out a way to deploy the pieces correctly because he's Justin Longmere. And I think this year helped us understand how good of a coach he is based on how Fremantle had managed to turn things around in a lot of games in the second half. But again, we'll touch on that more when we get in our next episode. And I guess we're looking forward to that at this point because we've gone through both games of the round and we've kind of given our pieces that will help us lead into that post-mortem talk when we get there. We hope you've enjoyed this 63rd episode of Americans Watching the Footy. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find me individually at Castle Media. You can find me individually at BenjaminHK01. And you can find Brian Harambe on Instagram at CatNamedBrian. You better be looking forward to these prelims, especially if your team had this past week off because you ought to be rested up pretty nicely and largely healthy. And everything's coming to a head now. We're in the final four. If you're looking at the state leagues, we're approaching the grand finals and that. I'll definitely be watching some of that this weekend. So this really is the home stretch. And we're embracing it, as I hope all of you are as well. Thanks again for tuning in.